We started with the subject of in-laws in episode 6 and learned that there are some powerful but subtle psychological mechanisms that can come into play in our relationships with our in-laws. The more we're aware of these things and of our own stuff, the better equipped we are to maintain a healthy relationship with the new set of parents and siblings that usually come with the marriage. Today, we finish our discussion before heading over to a fascinating question from a member of the OYF clan. Welcome to the Only You Forever podcast. If you want to build a thriving, passionate marriage, we've got the research, the truth, and the answers you've been looking for. And now, here are your hosts, Caleb and Verlinda Simone Gendel. Hey, everybody. This is episode number seven, and we are going to finish talking about in-laws. So, Caleb, let's give everybody a quick summary to refresh us what we talked about in episode number six. Sure. We covered four points. They were the first thing that might come up is very likely to come up, I think, is jealousy in the in-law relationship. So that can be for time, for affection, for attention, anyone or maybe even all of those things. There's also competition can be another reality. And that brings the sort of the one facet of comparison. Another facet of that is expectations that we have. When we come into the relationship. Yep. Transference. So that's stuff that was missing in my family that I look for or expect in yours without perhaps even recognizing that I'm doing so. Okay. And we give it nurturance as an example. There could be many different examples there. And then displacement, which is getting upset with the in-laws because it's easier than getting mad at my spouse or even my own parents. So a great example of that could just be something like around Christmas time, you know, my parents make their decision, which is fine, and I get mad at yours because I see them as interfering. So I'm displacing onto them because it's easier than seeing my parents as interfering. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So again, we want to affirm the need to honor our parents. And yet we hope that by opening up these areas of struggles, that it'll help normalize some of the challenges of being in relationship with our in-laws. And we think this is important because it could be a major marital issue, really. Absolutely. Yeah. So I found some research by Brian Conjure and Meehan in 2004, done or written up rather in the Journal of Marriage and Family, and they concluded that even in long-term marriages, people that have been married for a long time where you'd expect to see more resilience to this or more skills around it, that conflicts in extended family relations will erode marital stability, satisfaction, and commitment over time. So those in-law conflicts can actually wear away at the marriage bond. And that's why we want you to have some tools and ideas about how to approach these issues so that this can be a point of resilience in your marriage. Yeah. So the content that follows here is based on some great research found in the journal Family Therapy. Good. Let's jump right in. Number five, poor boundary regulation. Every family is different. Flexibility is a huge asset in creating a successful marriage. And that flexibility also needs to be extended to our in-laws. So we all have these expectations that we bring to our marriage about family rituals should look like and what the levels of parental involvement in the marriage should be, like how often we should see them, how often they should be calling or we should be calling them, how we engage, like on what level, what terms, what does that look like? Yeah. Are we treated as equals? Is it still very parent-child or do we come back as adults and friends? to the family of origin, that type of thing. Yeah. So many different things happen in there. So when we merge, some of those differences are going to feel like violations because I expected it to be one way and it's entirely a different way. So if your parents and 
let's say they always come as a, you know a parent to a child and there's a little bit more hierarchy left in the relationship but i on my side of the family was always raised to expect that we would come back as equals after we got married and then i go to your family and they treat me like a kid like whoa yeah yeah you can get really offended by that right yeah for sure so that's that's poor boundary regulation so that's where we need to manage and to support each other as a couple, have good communication, be together and realize that there's some differences here that we're going to have to navigate our way through. Right. Okay. When I hear poor boundary regulations, what comes to my mind is, you know, my in-laws have overstepped my boundaries and how I can be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I know that I need to be together with my spouse on this. So I'm just wondering how that, like, does that fit in here at all? Like making boundaries? That's where the flexibility comes in. So the couple needs to be together at all times. Right. So I would say in any situation, stay with your spouse. You can go back to your parents and apologize later. The parent and a child, they can never divorce. Right. Yeah. But a husband and a wife can. And so you have to do everything you can to preserve that marriage bond. You've made a covenant there. Yeah. You made a covenant there. And honestly, it might be one of those situations where it's easier to apologize than ask permission. So you can stay with your spouse you can go back to your parents later, but that comes after the thing that comes in between there is, you know, after you stuck with your spouse and you stood by them, you go home and you say, okay, whatever happened there tonight where mom and dad crossed your boundaries, you reacted way too strong. And we need to, to sort this out because in my family, that's normal. And in your family, obviously it's not, it's something hurt you or something touched you or affected you. So let's, let's talk about what's going on. So you unpack okay. it a little bit. And maybe when you see that through my family's lens, you realize that what my family did doesn't carry the same meaning as if someone in your family did it. So you're willing to lower that boundary. Okay. Right? Yeah. Or maybe I, you know, maybe I come from a family that has very poor boundaries and my parents did overstep something and we need to go back and now that I see it from your perspective and realize how violating that is for you, we'll come back to them together and say, hey, like we can't be doing it like this anymore. We would like to set things this way and would be really grateful if you could respect that. Do you have any, you know, solicit their input as well. Okay. See what they have to say. Okay. But what if... Like, and this isn't just for the parents-in-law. This goes for the son or daughter-in-law too. What if they don't respect that and keep overstepping boundaries? Well, without getting into a huge session on boundaries. Yeah, sorry. So the weird part of in-laws is that all of a sudden there's this very close familial relationship with people that were previously basically strangers. Yes. So that's that's hard to do. And those those people have like a 20 or a 30-year relationship with your spouse. And now you're received into that family almost the same position. Yeah. But with none of that history. So however this is going to unfold, we have to define those boundaries and how that relationship is going to look in a way that supports the marriage bond first and respects and honors the parents second. Okay. So, you know, without getting into all the details of how you slice some of these situations out, if we can move on that principle, yes, that's the, the guiding principle of the truths of scripture behind that, that a man shall leave his father, mother, and cleave unto his wife, and also the idea that you should honor your father and your mother, kind of blended together. I think that'll give you a framework for building out stuff like that. Yeah, that's good. That's a great question for our listeners. Number six, last one, discrepant role expectations. So I had a fun, I made up a little scenario. What if for our first baby, now when we came to our first baby, I didn't know a thing about babies. I was scared of them. But what if for the first baby, I, the husband, had been looking forward to being awesome dad number one. That was capital A, capital D. Which you were. Thanks. I take time off work. I read all the same baby books you do. I'm committed to sharing all the infant parenting 100%. So for everything but the breastfeeding, we're splitting her 50-50. Sounds good. Okay. 
The day after we get home from hospital, your mom shows up and she thinks she's the 50% that I was going to be. Now, Verlinda's mom didn't do this. So this is a very much a created scenario. She was there, but not in an invasive way at all. She was wonderful. But imagine that the mother-in-law thinks she's going to be the half that I was planning to be. Now, for us, that wasn't our picture, like I said, and there could be a thousand variations on this, but there's plenty of opportunity for conflict here. Yes. And resentment and bitterness. And this is just about role expectations. What does it look like in your parents' eyes about how a grandmother should be right after a baby's born? What was I taught to think of as a son about how I should be as a young dad when a baby's first born? What were you taught about how a dad should be, a mom should be? And so all these expectations around roles all come into play in this one situation. So that mother could be coming in thinking she's completely doing the right thing and she's doing you guys a favor. And the wife could think the same thing too. And then the poor husband's just out on the curb. Yeah, all of a sudden. And nobody had any ill will. Nobody's trying to, you know, bump anybody off or yeah. push anybody out. So no ill was intended, but now we have differences in role expectations. And I think just realizing that this can happen is half the battle. Yeah. Because then it gives me a chance to come in instead of being you know, personally assaulted or offended that I'm being pushed out. I can say, look, mom, I was really hoping to play a part of this too. And I'm so glad you're here, but, you know, can I feed the baby once in a while? <laughs> and can I hold her? I, you know, I'll recognize that you're here just for a few weeks. So I'm definitely happy to give you some more space because I realize you live far away or whatever the case might be. Yeah. But I need a little bonding time with baby too, because it's a, it's my new son or yeah. daughter, right? Yeah. So those those role expectations may need to be negotiated. Does that make sense? Yep, for sure. So that, I think that underlines the same principle about the couple relationship being first and the parental second, but still being respected. Yeah. I think all of these six points, they all kind of say the same thing, like spouse first, parents second. Mm-hmm. And the parents need to respect that too, that now the couple is first and the child-parent relationship becomes second. Yeah. And in all of it, both the son, daughter-in-law and the parents-in-law want the best for the relationship and best for the other person. But because of all these things we've talked about, like role expectations and poor boundaries and just different family of origins, it can come across not looking that way. Mm -hmm. But if we keep that in mind, it's easier to take things rather than turn it into, oh, they just don't like me. Yeah, so maybe another principle we should have thrown in here was not to personalize interactions with in-laws that hurt us. Because it's easy to internalize something, to take it personally when they're just doing things the way they've always done them. And to them, it's perfectly normal and there's no intent to offend. Yeah, they're just trying to get to know us too, just like we're trying to get to know them. Yeah, so I think part of the purpose of discussing this is just to normalize a lot of that, but also to appeal that we need to put in this sort of combination of boundaries and grace, where we're recognizing that it's spouse first and in-laws second. Spouse for love, for the marriage bond, in-laws, parents, for respecting and honoring because of the place they've had in our lives. Yeah. Sometimes we need to be ready to apologize, other times to forgive, but the marriage bond always has to be held sacred. That's good. Yeah. Okay, let's head over to our question and answer segment now. And now for our Q&A section. Remember, if you'd like to ask us a question, you can email it to questions at onlyyouforever.com or please leave us a voicemail at onlyyouforever.com slash questions. So this question comes from Pam. She says, how on earth does one go about helping others who have been involved in an affair 
or whose partners have been involved in an affair? That's a really good question. It's one actually that we've heard before, and it doesn't come with an easy answer. No, but we're glad you're asking because a lot of people in positions of responsibility in a church or in some type of ministry often have couples coming to them with an affair they've experienced and they're asked to try to help and support them. Yeah. So how can you help? Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, it's going to try to be a brief outline, but it's going to be a very high level outline of the progress that you need to take this couple, the process that you need to take this couple through. So I would suggest that if possible, go to professional help on something like this. Most affairs are not come by easily and they're usually not come by near the start of the marriage. So it means that there has been other stuff going on in the marriage for quite some time. But I realize as well that there are some areas of this world that are more remote than others, and that's not even an option to go get therapy. We know even in our area that we live in, it's impossible to get Christian couples counseling without driving for a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the internet has made some of that easier and so on, but we're going we're gonna to come at this assuming that the goal is to save the marriage. So the couple wants to do that, and you might want to actually check that out with them and ask some open and honest questions with them one-on-one about that issue. And for more in detail treatment, I'm going to give you just the summary of a book, a chapter out of a great chapter out of a book by a pair of researchers called Weeks and Treat. That's their last names. And the book is called Couples and Treatment. So what I'm about to give you in a few minutes duration represent months of work in real life. So this is going to take a while to work through, but hopefully it will give you a bit of an outline. Ready? Yep. Okay. First, the affair relationship needs to be terminated. No contact with the affair partner. You cannot have any hope of this marriage coming back together if the affair spouse still wants to contact the person with whom they had the affair. That's clear. That's clear. Now, you should expect a little bit of grief from the the affair, a little bit, maybe quite a bit of grief from the affair spouse over this, because that does represent the, the loss of an intimate relationship. But there's no proceeding unless this is taken care of. So that's like their commitment to their marriage yep. is cutting that relationship off. That's right. In some cases, like they recommend in their book, even suspending it for six months. If you just agree to do that, there'll be no contact for six months while you work on it. I'd say ideally shoot for a complete cutoff. Yeah. Second thing is determine the meaning of the extramarital partner. So this is going to be more work done now with the affair spouse. So I'm going to use sort of three different terms here for the three different people involved. The extramarital partner is the one, the affair. Outside the marriage. That was not part of the married couple yet. The affair spouse was the spouse in the marriage that had the affair. And the betrayed spouse is the the victim, if you will, on the side. And obviously you want to change that position away from being a victim. In the marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So often that extramarital partner was a projection of a parental or idealized figure. And again, I don't have a lot of time to unpack all of this. But just think about what the meaning of that extramarital partner is in terms of something that was looked for in a parent or some other idealized figure, there's qualities in that partner that were missing in the marriage spouse. That can be hard for the marriage spouse to hear. So the betrayed spouse, I should say, just to keep my terminology consistent. But there are two things you want to do. One, help them to see this, these qualities in the marriage spouse. If not, if those are not there in the marriage spouse, look at it as a search for what is missing within one's own self. So it could be that the, the affair spouse had something within themselves that was missing, you know, a void a deep, deep need, and they went looking for that in someone. They failed to see it in the affair. Sorry, they fa- betrayed. The, the betrayed spouse. They <laughs> found it in the extramarital partner. Okay. So it wasn't lacking 
in the betrayed spouse. They just didn't look for it there, so they didn't find it. It may have been lacking in the betrayed spouse. Okay. It may even be unrealistic to expect it in the betrayed spouse too. Or it may be that it was valid and the betrayed spouse simply can't supply it, but it's still no excuse to go have an affair. Right. Right? So it's a note to others that we can't judge a betrayed spouse or blame them for an affair. It's always the choice of the affair spouse to do what was wrong. And that's where the accountability, the responsibility needs to lie. Right. Third, deal with the feelings of anger, shock, and betrayal that were generated by the affair. So the betrayed spouse needs to be able to discuss these, to bring them up, and the affair spouse to acknowledge and validate them. Spend a lot of time here. It's going to take a while for them to be able to do that without one or both becoming very defensive. But whoever was betrayed needs a chance to to speak about the impact very clearly and in detail. And the affair spouse needs to hear... And acknowledge and not be defensive and not yeah, but yeah, well. Right. But yeah, I can. I did wrong. Yes. I understand how that hurt you so deeply. Okay. And to reach across and, and express that. Right. So the, the affair spouse at the same time, not at the same time, but more following also needs to talk about how he or she feels. Now, when they're having these discussions, you have to judge about how reactive they are, like how, um, likely they are to explode on each other. If they can't have this discussion productively at home, they should only have it when they're with you and you can contain the discussion. But otherwise, if they are having it at home, and it can't be a constant iteration and they're talking about this night after night after night, these deep emotional things, they're just going to exhaust themselves. So they need to have agreed times and limited times when they do talk about these, but chances where they can connect and, and talk about it as long as they're able to do so productively. If they're not, save it for a counseling session right. or a schedule. So it can't just go on and on. Now, with regards to the affair and the details of it, a lot of people go to endless searching for facts. The betrayed spouse does because it's easier to try to get all the facts and get all the details than have these tough emotional discussions. But With what, their affair spouse. Yes, okay. absolutely. But what it's, what's important is to know that it's not helpful to go super detailed about what happened during the affair. So what do they need to know? Well, Weeks and Treat recommend that the betrayed spouse knows who the extramarital affair partner was, Mm -hmm. how long the affair lasted, how often they met, and where they met. Which if you stop and think about it, those are all your safety factors for the betrayed spouse to know whether the affair spouse is going into the same situation or meeting with the same person or has the same timing, that type of thing. Right, okay. So when it's all cut off and these things are revealed, there's there's a sense of, of knowledge of what goes on and when and where. Okay. Overall, we want to be sure to talk about feelings and needs, not the facts. So really trying to drive to the deeper emotional unpacking of those things. And really that betrayed spouse is going to feel scared and going to need reassurance. Quite often there's more to these things if there are other factors of mental health or family of origin issues. But overall, the goal here is the slow rebuilding of trust. And it is going to be slow. The affair spouse has to take responsibility for the rejection sensitivity that they've created and rejection sensitivity is just a phrase to describe the fact that the betrayed spouse is going to be hyper vigilant and very suspicious and and you know right. wanting to know where you are what you're doing or why you're 15 minutes late all that kind of stuff so with every reason to be you the affair person have created that yeah right and so you can't expect them just to stop that because you've promised to cut this off right so you're gonna to have to very slowly rebuild it and you, you created it very severely with an incredibly powerful betrayal act. And that's going to take a long time to erode what you created there. To build that trust back up again. Yep. So the proper response is to carefully explain to your betrayed spouse the comings and goings that you're involved in, making sure that you're always reachable by phone, 
making sure that there's accountability available. So that they feel safe in the relationship. Yeah. So when you're helping this couple, that's what you want to help them to try to... To create. To create, start to rebuild that sense of safety. Okay. Absolute honesty is important. An accidental meeting of the extramarital partner should be reported. So if I just... who? Even if I agree to cut this off, if I if I happen across the person, it must be reported to the betrayed spouse. Okay. So you're always up front and forwards because you don't know if, you know, Fred from church happened to be walking down the street at the same time and saw you acknowledge each other. And that gets back through the social circle or whatever might happen there. Right. So be ahead of the game. Be honest up front. This happened. Didn't mean to. Because if is, you hide it. And then it comes out. It's going to be worse. A hundred times worse. And you just reinforce that betrayal thing so much stronger. Okay. Yeah. So this is all quite a bit of time that lapses through here. Then after that emotional phase comes the task of making sense of what happened. This is sort of the final phase or the second to last phase of the therapy, giving meaning to the affair. So understanding how to interpret that in the light of your marriage. And often if you're working with people from a faith background, it's something like God has used this to do this for us or help us understand this or maybe even to make our marriage stronger. Maybe that, that'll be an outcome that comes out of this. So somehow people eventually will begin to give meaning to that affair. You're not going to try to want to get to this at the start because the betrayal yeah. is so profound. It's hard to believe that people get there. Yeah. Yeah. But often they do. Some people turn it into a ministry thing. Right. For example. And they see that as now they're going to go help others in different ways. So it's kind of interesting what does come out of that. And then also they want to talk about what is to be learned to prevent this from reoccurring. So how are we always going to, how are you going to help this couple have that discussion about always keeping their marriage fresh and dealing with these core issues and having a place to talk about them and relate to each other so they never have to go outside the marriage to have some needs satisfied. Okay. And then there's the whole reconciling, softening, forgiveness, and actively rebuilding the love. So that's going to be occurring through this process, but, you know, especially if you're working with people from a faith background, don't jump to that sort of quick Christian, you know, do you forgive Attitude. your brother? You know, we need to settle this before the sun goes down tonight. It's not that simple. There's right. going to be a lot of nights the sun goes down. It's going to be hard for them. But they want to come to that place eventually where it is laid out. They've had the chance to express their experience. And the other partner or the, the other spouse that has done the betraying can see the hurt, acknowledge it, and so on. And when they feel that acknowledgement and understanding and see the affair spouse turning towards instead of going outside and these healthy behaviors are placing and the trust is being built, then forgiveness and those types of things come into play. Okay. The pieces are there for that. So are you that, saying that they need to carry this for months and months and months? Like, couldn't they forgive? Like they might have to forgive over and over and over as it keeps coming up. Yeah, but that, that's a lot to carry. Sorry, you're right. I don't want to say don't forgive. Yeah. I guess I'm just trying to avoid forcing some kind of a platitude or quick fix. Yes. You know, let's forgive each other and get on with our marriage here without really dealing with the issues and understanding the deeper things and helping this cus this couple rebuild intimacy. Right. Deeply. Okay. It is probably more like what you said, though. There may be a crisis of forgiveness very close to the start and then a revisiting of it all the way through as the hard feelings come up and, yeah. and the healing occurs again and again and again. Okay. Yeah. It's more like closure at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they're not revisiting it continually. Right. This is so this becomes a permanent feature in their marriage, this yeah. experience. And there's no removing that memory, but you want the memories of it 
to bring up softer emotions rather than harder emotions. Softer ones, more like sadness, loss of uh, like mourning, the loss of what was, you know, an a unbreached intimate relationship, mm-hmm. rather than harder feelings of anger, retaliation, bitterness. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, that type of thing. Yeah. So there you have it. Hopefully that's of some help to you. And that's all for today's episode. Remember, you can get the full show notes at onlyyouforever.com slash seven. Remember, we're here to help build thriving, passionate marriages. So send us your marriage questions in to questions at onlyyouforever.com. Thank you for listening to the onlyyouforever.com podcast. Please help us reach and influence a wider audience by rating and reviewing our podcast at onlyyouforever.com slash love. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. What do you do if you miss your mother-in-law? What? Reload and try again. Ah. (laughs) I got a better one. Behind every successful man stands a devoted wife. That's good. And a surprised (laughs) mother-in-law. You're terrible. Nice. Then there's a joke about the guy who was told by his doctor that he only has six months to live. He decides to move in with his mother-in-law because living with her for six months will seem like forever. Nice. I kind of seen that I could have gone off on a tangent there. Yeah, you're good not to. Because I think we should have a thing on boundaries, though. Yeah, we should. And I was thinking when we were talking, and I almost said it too, oh, this is a good topic. Just expectations. Yeah. I think would be a good one. Yeah. Coming into a marriage, like I might expect you to do the dishes every night. Yeah. Or make supper one night a week like my dad did, right? Yeah. Is this still on? Yeah. Caleb, turn it off. <laughs> well, this is how I get the booper section again. No. <laughs> Dork. I don't even have my earphones on. No, you can't hear yourself. <laughs>